Well, again, good morning, everybody. Let me ask a question. How many of you have ever had a chance to meet one of your personal heroes? Anybody ever uh, have a chance to meet one of your heroes? Maybe a, a celebrity, a sports star, uh, uh, maybe a politician, you know. Uh, how many of you have ever had the experience of when you've met your hero, you were sort of disappointed, maybe a little bit let down? You ever had that experience happen to you? Or maybe you, uh, you read an article and you got to know a little bit more about who they were as a person and you just kind of walked away a little bit disappointed. I had an experience like that when I was in high school. Uh, I grew up in Eden Prairie going to Wooddale Church, and one spring our church had invited this uh, uh, really well-known, nationally, uh, nationally known recording artist to come and do an outreach concert at our church. And uh, I had won a contest in our youth group to, uh, to serve as a host for this uh, nationally known artist who was coming in to do a concert. And uh, basically that meant I was going to get to hang out with him for the evening before the concert, have dinner with him. And, and uh, the night of the concert came, and I was so excited to meet this guy. And uh, it turned out that when I met him, he just kind of came across as a little bit of a jerk, to be honest with you. I mean, I was, I was so disappointed because I was so excited to meet this guy and hang out with him. And, and he just kind of blew me off, didn't, <laughs> didn't want anything to do with me. And, uh, and I just remember being let down. And it was one of the first times in my life where I realized that our heroes are oftentimes really, all the time, nothing more than ordinary men. You know what I'm saying? And uh, oftentimes when we get to come to know our heroes and learn more about who they are in person or as people, uh, our heroes oftentimes end up disappointing us. But there's one hero that we look up to. One of my personal heroes, and I know he's a hero of all of you, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one hero, friends, who will never let you down. In fact, Jesus Christ is the one hero who the more you get to know about him, the more you come to learn about him and realize about him, the more you come to see he really is the real deal. Jesus has never let me down. In fact, the more I've come to learn about Jesus, the more I've come to love him, and the more I've come to hold him up as a true hero that I want to follow and emulate my life after. Jesus is uh, no ordinary man. And today, as we continue our series through, the, uh, through this uh, year-long journey that we're on called The Story, we've been looking at uh, God's story and his work throughout the history of the world, from the Old Testament through the New Testament, and God's plan of salvation and redemption, uh, trying to reach out to his creation, the men and women that he made, that he loves. And uh, for the last couple of weeks, we found ourselves landing in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, the biographies of Jesus Christ. And uh, as we saw in the video today, today we're going to be looking at some of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ and who he was. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus really was no ordinary man. In fact, even today, he still is no ordinary man. Jesus is truly the hero of heroes that we can look to and admire. Now, Jesus' life, believe it or not, is actually, uh, this is a hard thing to preach on in just uh, one 30-minute sermon, right? I mean, you'd think of all the things you could preach on, preaching on Jesus would be easy. But, you know, we're talking about the four Gospels here. Some guys spend years preaching through just a a single book of uh, one of the Gospels. So uh, what I want to do today is I'm going to land in one chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. And the reason I want to focus on John chapter 6 is because John shares with us three stories here. Three episodes from Jesus' life and teachings and ministry 
which I believe really encapsulate a lot of who he was and what he taught and what he claimed about himself. And so we're going to look at John chapter 6, and I'm not going to claim to uh, do a full exposition of each of these stories that we're going to look at, but what I do want to highlight for you in these three stories from John chapter 6 are three of the extraordinary ways John reveals to us, three extraordinary ways in which Jesus Christ truly is no ordinary man. And so uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to the book of John chapter 6, and I'm going to start out by reading the first 15 verses in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. And then I want to come back and I'm going to make some observations about what John shares with us here about who Jesus Christ is and then pull out some application for us in our own lives today. So the first episode here in John chapter 6 is in verses 1 through 15. Let's read together. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not be enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, this is a great story from Jesus' life. One of the great miracles Jesus performed, the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus' miraculous feeding of over 5,000 people. In the New Testament era, they only counted the men. So there were actually probably upwards of 10,000 people if you figured an equal number of women and children there. So Jesus here, you've got to get the scene. He's teaching this great crowd of people all day long. And he begins to realize that the crowd is getting hungry. And so he turns to his disciples and he says to Philip, who was from this area, this region in Galilee, he says, Philip, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? And Philip, you know, he's a bean counter. And so Philip's initial response is he starts looking at at the crowd and he starts looking at the purse that they have, you know, and he's, you know, counting the coins and he's realizing, Lord, eight months' wages wouldn't be enough money to buy enough bread to give just each person a bite. Well, then Andrew comes along, and Andrew's response is a little bit better. He comes along, and he brings this little boy to Jesus who had brought a lunch along with him. And, An- and Andrew brings this little boy up, and he says, Jesus, here, this little boy we found, he's got five little barley loaves and two small fish, little sardine-like fish. And then he says, but Lord, you know, what good is this going to do? I mean, how is this going to feed so many people? You know, friends, I find it interesting that the disciples' default response in this situation 
their default reaction to the challenge in front of them was, was to doubt, right? They doubted. And I find it interesting that they would doubt Jesus in this circumstance because think of what they had already witnessed Jesus do up, up to this point in his ministry. The disciples had already seen Jesus miraculously turn water into wine at the wedding in Canaan. They had seen him heal an official's dying son. They had seen him make a lame man walk again. But these disciples still hadn't fully believed in who Jesus was. And this is why Jesus teaches them this lesson on faith here at the beginning of John chapter 6. It's a lesson about our faith and God's faithfulness. You see, the first thing John reveals to us about Jesus here in John chapter 6 is Jesus is no ordinary man. Number one, he's a powerful provider. He's a powerful provider, and he's a multiplier of our faith. You see, the disciples here failed to recognize who it was that they were with. They failed to recognize that Jesus was no ordinary man. In fact, they were in the presence of Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh is one of the Old Testament names for God, which simply means the Lord will provide. It's one of the names given to God in the Old Testament. The Lord will provide. And the disciples forgot that they were in the midst of the Lord who provides, Jehovah Jireh. The first time we hear this name for God in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 22, where God had called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac as an act of obedience. God was testing Abraham's faith. And Abraham, who loved his son Isaac, who had waited his whole life for this promised son, stepped out in faith and in obedience, and he took Isaac to the top of a hill and built an altar. And out of obedience to the Lord, not understanding what God was doing, but out of obedience, Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac. And right as Abraham was about to lower that knife and sacrifice Isaac, God stepped in and said, No, stop, Abraham! Now I know that you trust in me. And God at that moment miraculously provided a lamb right there on the hilltop. A lamb for Abraham and Isaac to sacrifice in Isaac's place. And so Abraham in that moment named that spot and gave the title to the Lord, Jehovah Jireh. He's the God who provides. And the disciples here had forgotten that they were with Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Philip and Andrew were looking at their situation from their human understanding. But they had failed to factor in the reality of who Jesus was and what he could do. You know, Philip and Andrew, they're looking at the circumstances and they see 5,000 people, they see five loaves of bread, they see two little fish. They're thinking to themselves, five plus two, this doesn't equal 5,000, Jesus. We're in trouble here. But you see, they were looking at it from their human understanding. And when you add Jesus to the equation, everything changes. You see, five loaves of bread plus two fish plus Jesus. Friends, when you add Jesus to the equation, anything is possible. Anything is possible. Jesus is a powerful provider, a multiplier of our faith. And friends, when we trust Jesus in faith, when we trust him in faith, when we step out in faith, Jesus can take our little and he can make a lot out of it. Jesus can take our little and he can make a lot. 
one of the great stories that has been a huge encouragement to me in my life in this in regards to this principle of how God takes our little and makes a lot out of it. Great story that's always encouraged me since I was a little boy is a story of my grandfather, Harold Carlson. My grandfather grew up the son of a butcher. He was being mentored to become a butcher in western New York. And when my grandfather was a young man, he felt the Lord calling him to go into pastoral ministry. When he was in his late high school years, he sensed God beginning to say, Harold, I want you to become a preacher. Not only that, Harold, but I'm going to make you a great preacher. And my grandpa, when he first sensed this call to ministry, he really struggled with it. He wrestled with God over this one. He prayed and said, God, what are you doing? What are you thinking, God? You sure? You see, my grandpa had, from the time he was a little boy, a very severe stuttering problem. And he could barely communicate a sentence without tripping over his words. When you put my grandpa in front of a large group of people and asked him to speak, he would stutter and could barely get out a sentence. And my grandpa wrestled with God and said, God, how are you going to make me a great preacher? I can't even speak a sentence without tripping over myself. But God told my grandfather, he said, trust me, trust me. And so in faith, my grandpa, he enrolled in Bible college. He came here to the Twin Cities. He enrolled at Bethel Seminary. And he went through his years at seminary. And he studied each day at school. And he prayed each day that God would cure him of his stuttering problem. And at night, he'd go back to his apartment. And he and my grandmother would work through verbal exercises. And over the course of four years, God did a miraculous work in my grandfather's life and cured him of his stutter, completely cured him of it. My grandfather went on to become one of the great preachers in America. John Renneker, as a matter of fact, grew up in my grandfather's church out in California. Back in the 1950s, Time Magazine actually did a story on my grandfather's church, First Baptist Church in Lakewood, California. At the time, it was the fastest growing church in America. Robert Schuller, the famous uh, pastor from the Crystal Cathedral in Anaheim, He used to tell seminary students, if you want to learn how to preach, go and listen to Harold Carlson. This was a young man, the son of a butcher, who could barely speak a sentence, who stepped out in faith and trusted that God had called him and that he had a plan and a purpose for him. And God took my grandfather's life and did great things through him. See, friends, God doesn't call those who feel equipped. He equips those he calls. You need to understand that. God doesn't call those who feel equipped. He equips those he calls. And I tell you something this morning. If God has called you, if you've sensed God's call in your life, if you've sensed God calling you to step out in faith, to trust him, maybe God said, you know what, I want to challenge you to step out and serve. I want to challenge you to step out and serve in the church in some capacity. I want to challenge you to go out and share your faith with that friend, that neighbor, that coworker. And you've been feeling these promptings in your spirit, God leading you, calling you, drawing you to some challenge. And you might have been saying to God, God, are you sure you got the right person here? God, I, I, I don't have the skills to do this. I don't have the education. I'm not, I'm not equipped to do this. Friends, God doesn't call those who feel equipped. He equips those he calls. And I promise you, if God has called you, if you sense God's voice in your life, I promise you, if you step out in faith and trust in him, God will take your little 
and he'll turn it into something great. Because that's who he is. He's a powerful provider. He takes our little and he makes a lot. Jesus does big things with small contributions. And when we step out in faith, and like that little boy who gave his five barley loaves and his two fish, he placed them in the hands of Jesus. Friends, when we place ourselves in the hands of Jesus, he can do amazing things with us. He can do amazing things through us. Our faith partnered with God's faithfulness is a powerful combination. The second thing we see here in John chapter 6, not only is Jesus a powerful provider, a multiplier of our faith, but he's also a personal presence. He's a personal presence in the storms of life. Let's take a look at verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three, three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now John just gives us an abbreviated glimpse into this story. In two of the other Gospels, they flesh out this story a little bit further for us. And what we find is that the disciples had set out across the Sea of Galilee in the darkness of the night, and they got caught in a powerful storm. See, the Sea of Galilee is a huge lake. It's 13 miles long by 6 miles wide, and it sits in the middle of this valley with mountains on three sides of it. And what happens is, is the air from the Mediterranean Sea comes over the mountains from the west side and it mixes with the warmer air from the deserts to the east. And this creates violent storms there in the valley, causing these violent windstorms and violent waves. One of the other gospels says that the disciples, as they rolled, they were tormented by the waves. The waves were buffeting up against their boat and they were terrified. One of the Gospels says that it was the fourth watch of the night. In the darkest point of the night, they're out in the middle of this lake, and the wind and the waves are piling over the ship. But Jesus comes to them at the darkest point of the night. He walks out into the midst of the storm, and he meets them there in the midst of the storm. You know, they were probably wondering for a time if Jesus had forgotten them. But Jesus hadn't forgotten them. He came to them out on the water. And I'll tell you something, friends. Jesus meets us in the storms of life. He always comes to us in the storms of life. And he does this because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6 tells us, prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus came. For unto us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what? Prince of Peace. Hebrews 6.19 tells us that not only is he our Prince of Peace, but he's also the anchor for our soul. He's the anchor for our soul. What does that mean? How many of you guys have ever been to the playground and played on the merry-go-round out on the playground? You guys uh, like the merry-go-round? You know, you spin that thing around and you're hanging on for dear life, you know? I remember when I was a little boy, I used to love going to the playground with my brother and my dad because my dad would get that merry-go-round whipping around, you know? We'd be like, hey, God, you know? And and the thing about the merry-go-round, the merry-go-round is fastened to the ground by a center pole called the anchor point. 
And around that anchor pole, the rest of the merry-go-round spins. And what happens is, is the further and further you get away from that center anchor point on the merry-go-round, the faster and faster it feels like you're going and the harder and harder the forces are that feel like they're trying to pull you off that merry-go-round. But you know, when you're hanging on to that center anchor pole, you're safe, you're secure. You can spin that merry-go-round as fast as you want, but you're not going to go anywhere when you're hanging on to that anchor. And that's what Hebrews means when it calls Jesus the anchor for our soul. When we're holding on to Jesus Christ, that's where we find peace. You know, one of the greatest storms that I've ever had to face in my own life came about a year and a half ago. Some of you know my father passed away suddenly and unexpectedly. He had just turned 61 years old. I remember I was driving up to Walmart. It was about 5 o'clock in the evening. I was driving over to St. Croix Falls, and I got a call from my mom. And My mom was frantic. She says, Jason, your dad won't wake up. The paramedics are here. She said, Jason, you've got to come. They were at my family's cabin up near Spooner, Wisconsin. And I just remember I just took off down highway as fast as I could. And I just remember praying the whole time as I'm driving. I remember praying, God, save my dad. God, please save my dad. I got to Turtle Lake, Wisconsin, and got a phone call. And it was the doctor at the emergency room at the hospital in Spooner. He said, is this Jason Carlson? I said, yeah. He said, Jason, this is Dr. So-and-so. He said, Jason, are you driving? And I said, did my dad die? He said, Jason, I'm sorry. And I just remember immediately as I'm driving, I remember my hands went numb. My whole body was cold. I couldn't even feel the steering wheel. Tears were streaming down my face. And I just remember crying out to God, God, what are we going to do? God, what, what are you going to do? What's our family going to do, God? Who's going to take care of our mom? And I remember as I drove north towards Spooner, all of a sudden there was this, this profound sense of peace with me there in my Explorer as I was driving. It was as if Jesus himself had hopped into the front seat next to me. And I remember hearing a very distinct voice in the quiet of my own mind saying, Jason, it's going to be okay. Jason, I'm going to take care of your family. I'm going to take care of your mom. Jason, it's going to be okay. See, friends, you may know Christ. You may know Christ, but you'll never know him deeply until he comes to you in the midst of the storms of life. And he will come. He always comes because he's a personal presence in the storms of life. Hebrews 13.5 tells us that God will never leave you nor forsake you. In Psalm 139.7-10, King David asks, Lord, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere. God will never leave you nor forsake you because Jesus is a personal presence in the storms of life. Not only is Jesus a powerful provider, not only is he a personal presence in the storms of life, but thirdly, John reveals to us here that Jesus has made a profound promise. He's made a profound promise. Let's take a look at John chapter 6, verses 25 through 35, and then verse 40. 
When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? I mean, he just fed 5,000 people for Pete's sake. And they want another miracle. They said, our forefathers ate the man in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And then in verse 40, Jesus said, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus here, friends, has made a profound promise. He says to us that he is the way to salvation. He says he's the way to eternal life. And he says that in him is true satisfaction. In this life, here and now, and forevermore. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I'm the food for your deepest hunger. See, friends, all of us, our hearts yearn to be filled with God. King David said in Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. Friends, all of us have within us a deep inborn hunger in our souls. It's a hunger that tells us there must be something more to life. There must be some greater meaning and purpose to our existence. And we have this hunger in our souls because God's word tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women. God has placed in each of us a desire to know the eternal purpose for which we were created. And that is to live in a relationship with him, our Heavenly Father. And apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, friends, you will never know true satisfaction in this life. You know, it's like that famous song by the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger saying, I can't get no satisfaction. He says, I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. But Jesus comes to us and he says, I am the bread of life. I'm the satisfaction for the hunger in your soul. Why does Jesus call himself the bread of life? Why does he use bread for this metaphor? Friends, Jesus chose bread because bread is a universal staple. Bread is a source of sustenance for people all over the world. People all over the world eat bread in its various forms. You know, my dad, he was a traveling evangelist. He had traveled to over 80 countries in his lifetime. And I remember when I was a little boy, I noticed after a while that whenever my dad would travel to different countries, he always took a little jar of Jif peanut butter with him. 
And I remember one day I asked my dad, why are you always taking a jar of peanut butter with you in your luggage? And he said to me, he said, Jason, no matter where you go in the world, you can always get good bread. And he said, as long as I got some peanut butter with me, I know I'm not going to go hungry. See, Jesus chose bread for his metaphor, I am the bread of life, because he knew that it was a universal staple, a source of sustenance. Jesus understood that when you're hungry, bread will fill you up. And people all over the world know this. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, what he's saying to us, friends, is that he's the spiritual staple that our hearts long for. He's the one who will make you full. Sadly, though, most people in the world have no clue today as to where true life is found. Most people totally miss out on where our true source of spiritual nourishment and fulfillment comes from. I read an interesting story this past week. It was, a, an old, it was an old uh, Sports Illustrated magazine. And it had a story in it called Ali and His Entourage. It was from back in the 1980s. And it was about Muhammad Ali after his retirement. Years after his time fighting, years after being in the public eye, in the limelight, the center of attention for so many years, the three-time world champion. And this uh, author of this article, he went to Muhammad Ali's famous farmhouse where Ali had trained for so many years. He had this old barn where he had set up a boxing ring and all this equipment to train. And back in the heyday, this thing was filled with trainers and coaches and media. But on this visit to this farmhouse, the Sports Illustrated author, he reported that the farmhouse was empty. There were cobwebs lining the walls. The boxing ring was covered with a layer of dust. And he noticed that along the walls of the farmhouse were hundreds of posters and pictures, trophies lining the walls. Posters of Muhammad Ali in his prime, the thrill in Manila, holding the championship belt, his fist pumped in the sky, his sculpted body. And he noted in the article that Muhammad Ali as he was walking around, realized that all of his pictures had these white streaks on them, bird droppings from the pigeons that had made the rafters of his training facility their home now. And Muhammad Ali, he walked up to a few of these posters and he flipped them over, turned them up against the wall, and he walked over to the door of the barn and he turned to this report and he said, I had the whole world and it wasn't nothing. Look now. I had the whole world. And it wasn't nothing. Jesus said, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? See, friends, true life is found only in a relationship with Jesus Christ. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ by trusting in him and what he's done for us on the cross. Romans 10, 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul tells us that if we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, Paul says you will be saved. 
In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the Apostle Paul tells us that our salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. You can't earn your salvation. You cannot work for it. You cannot buy it. Salvation is a free gift. It comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. And not only is salvation found in Jesus Christ, friends, but true contentment is found only in Jesus Christ. In the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, the Apostle Paul says, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. See, in Matthew 6.33, Jesus says that if we seek first him and his righteousness, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Jesus says when we get our priorities in order, when we put him first in our lives, when we seek him and his will for our lives first and foremost, Jesus said, then everything else will fall into place. But so often in our lives, I see so many people, they, they basically say to God, you know, God, I'm going to try to get my job in order and get my family figured out, and I'm going to climb the corporate ladder, and once I get my bank account straightened out, you know, God, once I take care of all these other details, then, then God, then I'm going to work on my relationship with you. But Jesus says, no, 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 you got it all backwards. Jesus says, put me first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will fall into place. We put God first and foremost in our lives because true contentment is found only in Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus is no ordinary man. He's a powerful provider. He's a personal presence, and he's made a profound promise. And just like his disciples 2,000 years ago, all of us today must also make a choice. And the choice is this. Will you trust and follow Jesus? Let's take a look at how Jesus' followers responded to his teachings here in John chapter 6. Take a look at verses 41 through 42 and then 66 through 69. After Jesus had claimed to be the bread of life, John reports, at this the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? In verse 66, John tells us, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. See, friends, the majority turned away because they would not accept Jesus' claim that he had come from heaven to be the bread of life. And I'll tell you something, this is still the stumbling block for many people today. The exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one 
comes to the Father except through me. Now why did Jesus say, I am the way? Because without Jesus, friends, you are lost. Why did Jesus say, I am the truth? Because without Jesus Christ, friend, you are living in error. And why did Jesus say, I am the life? Because without Jesus, you are dead. Risking your eternal destiny. As Peter said, where else are we going to go? Jesus, you have the words that lead to eternal life. Where else are you going to go, friend? John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In Psalm 34, verse 8, King David said, Taste and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Friends, have you tasted of the Lord? If you have, you know how good he is. And if you haven't, I pray you will. Because there's nothing else like him. Let's pray together. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, who's the personal presence in the storms of life and who's made a profound promise about how we might have salvation and true life through him. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us. Thank you for the powerful teachings you left us. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you for rising again, conquering the grave, and for giving us the hope of life here and now and life forevermore because of you. Lord Jesus, there may be somebody here this morning who has never fully put their trust in you. And I just pray that right here today, they may even in the quiet of their own heart just say a simple prayer and acknowledge their need for you to be their Savior and Lord. That they may say a simple prayer, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I know I need you. Will you please forgive me today and I want to commit my life to following you. And Lord, you promise that in a simple prayer like that, that you will meet us. You will be the bread of life for us. You will make us a child of God. If you've never prayed that prayer, friend, I pray you will. Taste and see how good Jesus is. He is no ordinary man. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.